Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com on your favorite podcast listening platform. I am Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a talent marketplace that enables biotechs to build world-class teams while keeping fixed costs low. You can check us out at clora.com. Very excited to welcome Jack Knowles, co-founder, president, and CEO of Affinity Therapeutics. Great to have you on today, Jack. Thank you, Raul. Great to be here. Jack, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about how you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career since you've been in biotech, and how you got to where you are today. I'll try to give the short elevator version. I'm an MD by training. Before med school, I had the opportunity to work at Sloan Kettering in New York, a native New Yorker, so great to work on the Upper East Side and then get to live in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And really was fortunate to be working with some great researchers there, Shaheen Rafi and David Lydon specifically. And one of the projects was a collaboration with a company called Imclone. They were developing what became Cetuximab, Herbitox, an anti-EGF receptor antibody. I was a lowly tech, so mostly I was transporting mice back and forth to different core facilities. I would irradiate them, replace their bone marrow with something called Rosa 26, which allowed you to kind of see the vascularization of tumors. And this therapy was intended to shrink tumors by cutting off their blood supply. So early days, mouse work. But by the time I went through medical school at Stanford and was starting into surgical training, I was actually prescribing this medicine to the, the patients who had head and neck cancer. So it was a very interesting experience, you know, seeing very quickly from, you know, when I was at Sloan Kettering in 2022, 2023, to when I was practicing 2029, things moved that quickly, right? That you could get a drug into the clinic and approved in a matter of seven to eight years. So for me, that was really exciting. And as I was trying to decide whether to continue my career training to be a surgeon, I think I came to the realization I would rather work in an industry where you could help thousands of patients rather than just a few or one at a time. So I moved back to New York, started in consulting, investment banking, and then was lucky enough to get a job in venture capital here in Boston in 2013. Moved out to work with MPM Capital, and I've been stuck here ever since. Love the Boston area. I've been fortunate to work with a number of companies and a number of great scientists, academics, and thought leaders to build what I think are some pretty remarkable biotechs. So the first company I had a chance to be a part of was a company I co-founded called Exonics Therapeutics. That was a company with Eric Olson out of UT Southwestern. And we were going after Duchenne muscular dystrophy with a way of doing in vivo gene editing. That company was acquired by Vertex back in 2019. Then briefly, the CEO of a natural killer cell company called Cytosen, which was in a partnership with Dean Lee, L-E-E, out of Nationwide Children's. And Dean really had found a way to turn in K-cells into a haplotransplant product that allowed bone marrow transplants to engraft and potentially be curative. So that company was acquired by Sanofi, but first merged with Kiatis. And I joined Leaps by Bayer after that merger had occurred. Bayer had formed this new venture fund called Leaps, wanted to invest heavily in cell and gene therapy, and that really had been the focus of my career. So really a great opportunity for me. I got to help lead early investments in Century Therapeutics, in Recursion, in Dewpoint, in Triumvira, a T-cell company also like Affinity, and then was really fortunate to meet two academics. One was Brian Thomas, who had spun out a new company called Metagenomi from Berkeley, and the other was Phil Greenberg, who I started and co-founded Affinity with. So Metagenomi, great gene editing company, was on their board, was also their chief business officer, helped them do a deal with Moderna. 
And then Affinity really is my pride and joy. I've been working on this company for the past three years, invested a lot of my own time and money into it, and happy to report we are just in the process of hopefully completing two IND submissions for KRAS G12V getting into the clinic this year. So it's been a whirlwind of a last decade for me. A lot of great opportunities, but really I've just enjoyed the experience and couldn't be happier with where things have landed with Affinity. Awesome. Thanks, Jack. Lots to unpack there. First off, curious how you think your background on the VC side has informed how you operate. Not a lot of founders and CEOs have that opportunity. So I'm curious what you took away from it, but also perhaps some of the kind of non-obvious things that you thought wouldn't make sense to take with you as you became an operator. Really couldn't say enough about the training I received. I started with a venture fund called MPM Capital, world famous venture capital shop. They started companies like Biomarin, Pharmaset, which created the first Hep C drug, Savaldi. So really, you know, their commitment and focus on drug development, on actually making product, that to me is a core thing I've taken with me throughout my career. It's great to work on cool platforms. It's great to work on cool technology, but you have to think about the end user. Who is this for, right? What patient is going to take this medicine? What doctor is going to prescribe this medicine? And I think that focus is something I've always tried to bring into all of my work. The other great thing about venture training is you kind of see behind the curtain how decisions are made at venture capital funds, which are not always linear and very dependent, a shop to shop. You also get to understand that there is a mindset. A lot of it is pattern recognition. So people are looking for a lot of the same ingredients. So when I'm building a company like Affinity, you know, you're thinking about who your co-founders are, who's going to be on your board, who's going to be on your SAB, what investors you let in early. All of these things kind of indicate to the marketplace your probability of future success. Obviously, the science still matters and data are, they trump everything. But when you build the company the right way, I think people can see the type of thought you're putting into it and the type of people that are willing to lend their time and energy to work on something. And that's usually a great predictor of success. I think you see a lot of companies with really smart management teams, really smart boards, great leadership. They can frequently pivot. They can find solutions and fix problems that occur, I think, a lot better than inexperienced teams. So really try to put the company together with those thoughts in mind. And now pulling on that thread of being exposed to the VC side, we'd love if you could talk to us about the first time you went out to raise capital and how your approach and mindset has changed from that first time to the most recent time you raised. Those are great questions. I think the first time was probably for Exonix on my own, at least. I'd done it on behalf of companies previously, but that was really the first time I was in that position. And, you know, candidly, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was great science and Eric's a great scientist. And so we had lots of conversations, but I wasn't really able to articulate, I think at that time, what my value prop was, what we were doing that was so meaningfully different than what others were doing. Luckily, Eric continued to publish and did a lot of the work for us. You know, his work speaks for itself. But I think what I've learned over time is you have to have the company itself kind of telling the story. It's great to have excellent collaborators, and we certainly have those at the Fred Hutch and Phil Greenberg, Ode Shapui, and Tom Schmidt. We added a fourth co-founder, Chris Klebanoff, out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, who's also a remarkable scientist and a clinician also. So you can lean on the work of these academics and what they're showing and what they're presenting, but the company has to really take ownership over what the product is. And I think that's what I've been able to do differently with Affinity is really articulate the vision for what a potential product could be that's differentiated first in class and we hope offers curative benefit to patients. 
Yeah, that's great advice. You know, we've heard folks come on and similarly say that the first time they started a biotech, it was more like a science project for them. Whereas over time, it became much more about value creation and what is the long-term vision, particularly when chatting with investors. So that certainly resonates, Jack. Would love if you could walk us back to the founding story behind Affinity and what those early days were like. What was the main driver for you to jump all into Affinity? And then also your perspective on the cell therapy landscape as you see it now. Great questions. I think when I was starting Affinity, I was still working at Bayer. So I was still on the Leaps team. I met Phil Greenberg. I got into the data room. A number of other investors were in there as well. Some notable groups here in the Boston area. And you know, what you saw was a very academic presentation, right? He identified a few TCRs that recognized a mutation, KRAS G12V. And so you could see that the TCRs were active against this mutation. You could see he'd gotten this to work in a few different cell lines, but it wasn't really clear how you were going to make this product durable, how it was going to overcome the tumor microenvironment. So your second question about solid tumor landscape. And, you know, there are a number of other KRAS options out there, right? There's small molecules now for KRAS G12C that have been approved for Amgen called Lumacraz, Emirati called Krizati. There are companies like Revolution Medicine who are working on pan KRAS inhibitors. And so the work that was in the data room at the Hutch didn't really demonstrate how this is going to be differentiated, how this product was going to stand out in a somewhat crowded field. And so I saw something right away, slept on it, went back and looked again, slept on it, went back and looked a third time, and then had to have the conversation with both my wife that this is something I think I have to do. For one, most of my career has been in oncology, so I always want to try to help patients with cancer. I think that's foundational to my experience of being a physician, but also the opportunity to work with Phil Greenberg, truly just a remarkable leader, thought leader in the immuno-oncology space. He's now been elected president of the American Association for Cancer Research is just truly a luminary. And that really spoke to me, you know, just a chance to spend time with someone like that, learning from them, and then to work on a target in KRAS, which is a target we've been thinking about in oncology for decades now. It's what's known as an oncogene driver mutation. So it's really fundamental to tumor biology. And here was an opportunity to go after it in a very novel way, something that I hadn't seen other people doing. And then around the time we were starting the company, there was a group at the National Cancer Institute, led by Steve Rosenberg, Eric Tran, and Leidner, who were showing that you could do this. You could take a TCR from a patient that recognized a KRAS mutation. In the case of, you know, the NCI Tran paper, it was KRAS G12D. Engineer that TCR into another patient as an autologous T-cell product and provide a clinical benefit. In this case, it was a publication in the New England Journal that showed they could shrink this patient's lung metastasis by 72%. So there was a clinical proof of concept out there there was a great academic co-founder at the Hodge, and there was some novel technology that was already coming out of Phil's lab that we could really build a company around. So how the company got started, I first talked to my boss, Jürgen Eckhart at Leaps, and he was supportive, but wanted to make sure we did things the right way. So went all the way up to the head of legal at Bayer, got them to sign off me starting the company. I couldn't pay myself. Bayer would not fund me until I'd left, but they did let me start the company while I was working at Bayer. So I funded it myself for the first three or four months. My wife started looking at me sideways around Christmas. <laughs> we were running out of money. The kids weren't getting the presents they wanted. But luckily, was very fortunate to have some early seed investors. Humboldt Fund and Metagenomi, actually, the gene editing company, provide that seed capital to let me get started in earnest. So as we were coming into 2021, really, you know, was able to accelerate the company build. So I wound up, you know, leaving Bayer 
I think a few months after that, joined Metagenomi as their chief business officer. And then over time, I was able to recruit a great team. Vita Ventures actually came in pretty early. I've been talking to Arjun Goyle and the founders of Vita, Helen Kim, Ari Beldegren, Rajul, and Stefan Viktorovic, talking to them for several months. And the question was whether we wanted to work with the second fund, so we'd be the last deal out of the old fund or the first deal out of the new fund. Again, having some understanding of venture capital, I recognized being the first deal out of the new fund was a much better place to be. So we were actually the, one of the first deals out of their, their new $825 million fund. And they were brought in as co-founders. They've helped build the company. They've helped make introductions to different C-suite members. Dirk Nagerson, for example, was our chief medical officer, was an introduction Arjun made. And really just been with us every step along the way. And I think you know, that's really a vital component of venture capital here in Boston is that company building expertise. And there's not a lot of shops that really do it in a way that's founder friendly, that's fair and gives a company the best chance to be successful. And I think Vita has been truly remarkable in that sense. They've been a, a great partner every step of the way. Yeah. Jack, you said something that is quite nuanced that I wanted to double click on just to make sure the folks that are listening get it. And it's an important point, which is which fund an investor invests out of? I, I've faced the same exact thing at Clora, and we've seen the downside of what you just talked about. So curious if you could just double click on that and explain the rationale for why investing out of the newer fund was the right choice. Sure. So for those who don't know, this gets into the weeds of venture capital. All funds have a vintage. So you start and you know call it 2020 to make the math easy, and the fund has to return all capital and stop investing by 2010, right? So you have this 10-year window. And so if you get a commitment to invest a certain amount of money, you're really deploying that capital in the first one to two years and the more early stage products. As you get into the second half of the fund, third year, fourth year, then you start looking at more later stage assets because you want to be able to return capital within that window. And so if you want to start an early stage company, and we were starting from scratch here, you really want to be one of the first investments out of a fund. It just gives you the longest time horizon before the venture capital fund needs to return capital. So you can have the most patient investor possible, but at some point, the contract they have with their limited partners is to return their money. People don't just let them invest money forever. So it's very helpful to be one of the early deals out of a fund because it just takes away that pressure, or at least gives you a little more time before you have that pressure to return capital. Well said, Jack. And now another point. You mentioned you know bootstrapping affinity in the early days. How do you think about what are the critical activities that need to be pursued when you're a bootstrap biotech, just given the capital intensive nature of drug development and how you approach that? Yeah, there's only so much you can do, especially in selling gene therapy remotely or cheaply. You need to build facilities, you need to have your own space, and the cost of making these drugs isn't cheap. I think the things you can bootstrap, you should always try to find a great lawyer. So we were lucky enough to work with Latham and Watkins. I've known one of the partners there, Nathan Ashiashvili, before I went to med school, before he was even in law school. And a lot of these law firms can work with early stage founders and defer legal costs until after you've closed your Series A financing. So that's a huge cost savings. It doesn't prevent you from having to pay legal bills, but you can kind of put it off until you've actually raised a significant amount of capital. I think it's also important to license the IP you're going after. I've seen a lot of companies blow up because they didn't actually secure the intellectual property early. You need to do that. So we're very lucky. I was able to work with the Fred Hutch to license these technologies before I'd even raised any money. So they were betting on me, betting on my ability to raise capital. But at the time, you know, it was all self-funded. So the license fees we paid were relatively small. 
but you know, was able to substitute equity in lieu of an upfront. So the Hutch received a portion of our company. They've actually invested in our company. We're one of the first biotechs that Fred Hutch has put money to work in. And so it's been a very virtuous partnership. We have a sponsored research agreement with the Greenberg Lab. We're going to run our first clinical study at the Fred Hutch. So really kind of finding those core partners and the people that believe in you early on is really valuable. Great. So with that backstory, Jack, would love if you could now talk to us about where Affinity is now and what folks have to look forward to. This ties into your question about the solid tumor space. So where we are now, we have about 90 employees here in Watertown, Massachusetts. Companies on pace to file two INDs in the coming months, both for KRAS G12V. KRAS is a very attractive target. A lot of people are interested in it now because of some of the small molecules that have been approved. But there's still a lot of room to grow. The small molecules, at least Lumacraz and Krizati, that target KRAS G12C do have clinical benefit, but unfortunately, they are unable to provide a long-term durable response. The patients on these medicines start to develop escape mutations, really because the small molecule doesn't kill the cancer cell. It's inhibiting its growth. But over time, that selective pressure is overcome by the tumor's ability to mutate. And the result is patients don't get long-term benefit. What we see is a real opportunity here from a cell therapy perspective to go into a solid tumor with an overwhelming number of cells. So we're manufacturing billions and billions of TCR-positive T cells. We then engineer those cells with synthetic biology to overcome the tumor microenvironment. So not just targeting a great mutation in KRAS, which is present on 100% of cancer cells and is really obligate for the cancer to survive, but giving those cells the best chance to succeed in the TMA. For those of your listeners who know about solid tumors, the tumors themselves can create this kind of localized immune suppressive environment. So inside the tumor, your immune cells don't work as well. Frequently, those cells get deleted. One of the ways this happens to T cells is through a fast, fast ligand. So fast ligand is expressed on tumor cells, expressed on endothelial cells. And as your T cell is kind of getting into the tumor, the fast on the tumor cell engages with fast ligand, and that pushes the T cell towards senescence and apoptosis. What we've been able to do is engineer a synthetic switch that converts that fast death signal to a co-stimulatory 4-1-BB signal. So instead of T-cells dying, we get tumors T-cells proliferating inside the tumor. And this, we think, is a really core way to overcome the challenges in solid tumors. And the final element we're bringing to the table here is manufacturing. So we're partnered with Elevate Bio here in the Boston area to develop our first cell therapy products. Very pleased to report we've had positive GMP runs with both Elevate and the Hutch. So far, things are going along very well. And we've been able to incorporate some gene editing. So not our first product for G12V, but for KRAS G12D and potentially all future products, we will make gene edited products. So that collaboration was started with Metagenomi about a year ago, starting to bear fruit. We showed some great data at ASGCT this year, able to knock in close to 40% efficiency without using any vector. So no lentivirus, no AAV. And we think that is robust enough to translate to a commercial process. So focusing on, you know, the right targets in KRAS, the right cells with ability to manufacture CD8 alpha beta T cells with synthetic biology, and then really engineering them both with gene editing and with our collaboration at Elevate to make the best product. Great, Jack. Certainly sounds like a really exciting time. One thing you mentioned is, you know, you partnered on the manufacturing side. So we'd love to understand your decision-making framework for whether you outsource or do it yourself. And at what point do you think it makes sense for companies to do it in-house, if at all? 
when we were closing our Series A financing, you're raising, you know, 175 million in a stapled A plus B round. Building our own manufacturing was actually part of our investment pitch. We were telling people we were going to spend money building our own manufacturing facility. And what we saw over the past two years is the market really shift. A lot of these manufacturing facilities are having to be sold. So companies are having to divest their manufacturing and they've spent, you know, millions of dollars. They've hired a bunch of people. They've tried to design the facility to accommodate their product, and then they have to hand it off to someone else. And so we kind of saw that happening and evolving in real time. And we were able to pivot. This is one of the benefits of being in a small biotech. We had hired a fantastic chief technical officer, Kim Wynn, who came to us from Precision. She and I were literally signed a lease for a 100,000 square foot shelf, not too far away from our office. But because we saw where the market was headed, we recognized this was going to become an obligation. Investors weren't rewarding companies who were taking these kinds of risks. And in fact, it made it harder to raise money because investors would see, you know, 50 cents on every dollar was going to fund this expensive manufacturing facility, which wasn't actually going to produce data. If you had a great product in the future, sure, that could be hugely valuable. But when you're in that early phase one, phase two area, it's really more of a liability. So we were able to pivot out of that facility and identify what we think is the best partner for us in Elevate Bio to go forward. I think there's a huge opportunity across the cell and gene space to work with really high quality CDMOs, groups that aren't just charging you money. It's not just a fee-for-service relationship. They're really motivated to make a product with you. And I think the upside for the groups that can do this is that they will get to be your commercial partner, right? If you're going fast with someone like Elevate, the goal is not to stop and do an expensive tech transfer. It's to take it all the way. So we really look forward to working with them. And we think we have a product here, something that could help patients. And we're really pleased to work with a group like Elevate that can help get it across the goal line as fast as possible. And Jack, you've obviously been working on Affinity for the last couple of years. And I imagine your role has changed as the company has evolved and matured. I'm curious how you view the evolution of your own role and what advice you would have for folks that even if they're a director of VP C-suite, but the company is rapidly scaling, how to stay ahead of those changes and to make sure that you continue to do what a more mature company needs of you? It's really hard because when you're starting a company, you're wearing a lot of hats, you're doing all these different things. And everything kind of runs through through me, right? If we're going to make a decision to license technology, if we're going to get into a partnership with, you know, Metagenomi or Elevate, I'm negotiating these deals. I've been a CBO before, so I feel like I can do them. But you quickly realize that's not really in the best interest of the company. What you need is to scale. And so I can't scale, right? The only way to scale is to hire really, really smart people and empower them to do the work. And so the biggest lesson I've learned is just an ability to take a step back. You know, one, I don't want to be the bottleneck for every decision that the company makes. And two, you give an opportunity, I think, to the next generation, to other people to step up and demonstrate that they have the skills to lead. I think it's really important for every company to figure out roles and responsibilities early, but to constantly evolve that and to not be afraid to let go, to not be afraid to let other people into the room. We just hired a great chief business officer, Daminda Ramanayake from Sanapi, he was a global head of BD. So being able to hand off all BD to another individual is something that hurts my heart sometimes, right? I want to be in the room. I want to be part of every conversation, but it's really a lifesaver, right? It frees me up to focus on fundraising and frees me up to think about team build, to think about getting into the clinic. And I think the more hands you have helping, it really does lighten the load. And I think it ultimately builds resilience and strength within your organization. So letting go is the key ingredient, I think successful. 
Great. And thanks for that great segue mentioning the next generation. I owe you a beer for it because you made my life easier. So now in that same vein of next generation, given all that you've achieved in your career, I'd ask you to reflect for a minute and just think about what advice you'd like to provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know. That's a great question. I think for all the young people out there, and I know I look very young, I'm 43. You know, I think it's hard to be patient, especially if you feel like you have something valuable to contribute. If you feel like you have a voice, something, a perspective that's different and an edge where you feel like there's value to be created and, you know, you just want to go do that. I think you can rub a lot of people the wrong way. And I definitely pushed a lot of good people out of my life. I definitely created, I wouldn't say toxic environments, but definitely that kind of win at all costs, go as fast as you can, work nights and weekends kind of ethos. It doesn't really translate, I I don't think, to long-term success. And so you have to be patient. You have to be thoughtful, pick and choose your battles. But it's hard because it's hard to say I would not, I would be as successful if I was patient. But if I think I could give any advice to my younger self, it would be to take your time, slow down. You'll get there. But what's more important is really building, you know, a community around yourself, people who are invested in your success that want to see you succeed and that will support you. You know, ultimately, none of us do this alone. This is a, a team sport. It's a team effort. I mean, you have to be able to play nice with others. So take your time. It's a fine needle to thread. Yeah. Yeah. Build those relationships. That's what matters. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Jack, thanks so much for joining us today and for sharing your story and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Affinity. Thank you, Errol. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.